So this past week I had to fly to California. It's a long flight and I had plans. I'm gonna get work done, I can you know, clear out the email inbox, I can think about these meetings I've gotta to go to. And then you get the middle aisle seat, or the middle seat, right? And it's cramped and it's hard to get things going. And I ended up watching sitcoms on the, on the American Airlines Wi-Fi. I like sitcoms. And if you think about it, there's basically two kinds of American sitcoms, right? There's the kind that are based in a family, and then there's the kind that are based in a group of friends. And since probably the 1990s, the latter kind is more prevalent. It's not that the other ones don't happen, but if you think about it, some of the biggest and best sitcoms of all time, they sort of walk that line. I Love Lucy in the 1950s, is more about her relationship with her friend. That's where more, I mean, the chocolate scene that we all remember is there. Or Happy Days is set in a family situation, but it's the friends that cause the problems. And Laverne and Shirley, the same. But it, in the 90s, it sort of takes this turn, right? You get Seinfeld, four friends. You get Friends, which is hugely popular on Netflix right now. And then, just this past year, the Big Bang Theory just ended after about 10 years or so. That's the sitcom I ended up watching. And when you can make something as consistently funny with the lives of four physicist nerds in Southern California, well, you're doing something right. And most of the time, we watch sitcoms for a release, for a laugh, right? We do it to unwind because we don't have to think hard and we don't have to feel the weight of things. But every once in a while, in one of these sitcoms, what happens? Friends have the hard conversation, right? The conversation that nobody wants to have but that we have to have, that we need. It's those uncomfortable conversations that help us to reset to reorient our lives. When somebody says, hey, wait a minute, you are going down a path that's destructive, that's wrong. And that's kind of where we are today in our series on conversations with Jesus. We're going to look at a hard conversation that Jesus has with one of his closest friends. And maybe that's a hard thing for us to get our, our, wrap our minds around, it, it, the idea of Jesus and friends. We, we're used to Jesus having followers, having disciples, but we don't generally think about him having friends. You know, the people that he hangs out with because he wants to, not because he has to, be that he wants to teach, the people that he does life with. John calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. And today, in Luke 10, 38 to 42, we're going to look at one of these hard conversations that Jesus has. It's a short passage. And it says this, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, 
or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for giving it to us that we can learn more about you and who we are to be because of it. And I pray that in this conversation this morning, we will see a little more clearly that we will learn to live more like you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If we were to just read this short passage, it would be easy to miss the closeness of Jesus with Mary and Martha. It says there was this woman, and he comes and stays at her house. But if you think back to John chapter 11, we read the story of the death of Lazarus at the home of Mary and Martha, and we see a connection there. And in verse 5 of John chapter 11, it says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Martha is named first in that list. And I find that very interesting because a couple verses earlier in verse 2, it is a, there's a reminder that Mary is the same woman who pours perfume all over Jesus. And that act might convey more love and more devotion to Jesus than anything that I can think about. And yet Martha is named first. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are among Jesus' closest friends. We see this when he weeps over Lazarus. And that makes this conversation, this short little incident, even more important. And I've got to be honest, I find this a difficult story. I find it a difficult story for a couple of reasons. Um, it seems like it goes against the grain of what so many of us get taught. And it seems this odd kind of thing where Jesus takes the wrong side. I also find this passage problematic because I grew up in church and I've heard more than a few problematic sermons about this passage. Sermons that almost get it right. Sermons that um, read so much into the passage that it's hard to know where the reality is. Because we don't have a lot of detail here. I mean, there's like two sentences of a conversation. It's just a little snippet. And so, as we start, I want to talk about a few ways that we read this story wrong first. In, in some ways, there are really three aspects of one tendency. And they're easy to fall into because they all, create, uh, they all contain a grain of truth. I don't know if you've heard about this or not, but right now there's a controversy on the internet about uh, Snopes is a big, you know, uh, internet website to, uh, to debunk false stories. And they have recently taken to debunking stories from the site The Babylon Bee. Well, The Babylon Bee is a fairly conservative Christian satire site, right? They don't write real stories. They're kind of like the onion for Christians. And they've actually, Religion News Service, I read, has done research on this. And the problem is, sometimes it's hard to tell what's satire and what's not. And that's one of the issues. And that's kind of what we're up against here. And so the first way that we kind of mistakenly view this, this passage is what I like to call fight night. I can almost hear... 
the, the announcer in my head, you know, let's get ready to rumble. And we pit Mary against Martha. And we, we kind of make it a personality conflict. The favorite one and the one who has to do all the work. Or between the good girl and the irresponsible girl. Or maybe the good girl and the bad girl if Luke's account of the woman with the perfume is actually Mary. The problem, of course, is that we have so few details here, it's hard to tell who's who in this story. And it's not surprising that we make this mistake, because Jesus, as we read, said to Martha, hey, there's one choice, and Mary made it. And so often we, we say, okay, this is Martha choosing the good or instead of the better or the best, and that's true in this passage. But what isn't true is making this, this choice a contest between two people the good one and the bad one. Who's better? Who's more spiritual? What are the real spiritual gifts? And what are the second-class spiritual gifts? The ones that really kind of anybody can have, you know? And that's not what's going on here. If you reread that passage, Jesus never pits Martha against Mary as a person. Not once. It's not a personality conflict. This isn't Jesus picking sides, I like you, I don't like you. And I think all too often we read it that way. And this is dangerous territory, but I have heard my mother say enough times, I'm more like Martha. My mom is a doer constantly. She doesn't know how to sit still. She will tell you that. She's 70 now. She has to. She still doesn't like it. I have found that this tends to be an issue, ladies, that you seem to take to heart more than guys do. I don't know if it's because these are two sisters in this story, and so we do this. I don't know, honestly, if this is a female thing, but I see it fairly consistent, consistently, this comparison game. Now, the flip side, guys, is that the danger is that we say, well, that's a women's issue, whatever that means and we don't have to deal with it, which is completely false. It is absolutely not the case that, that men don't play comparison games. We do. I think that the way that it happens is probably different. This is a human issue, and we all do this to one degree or another. We compare ourselves, and we decide this person is better than that person. And that's a wrong way to read the story. And the second way that we read this wrongly is what I call the stop all the busyness uh, way of looking at it. And this is perhaps the easiest mistake to make. I think it's also one of the most problematic ways. And it, it's connected to this first one, right? Because if Martha's doing is the wrong choice, then maybe we just need to stop doing. And when we read this story quickly, and that's easy because it's short, and we don't pause to think through the implications of what Jesus is saying, it's very easy to think this way. And then for us, as sort of conservative American Bible-believing church people, there's a second reason why this is really easy for us. It has to do with our immediate history 
of faith. You see, in the early 20th century, there was a lot of churches, a great deal of American Christianity was headed down a path of do, 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 do. That was a huge chunk of what we believed. And a lot of this was really good stuff, okay? It was helping people who needed help. Remember, the early 20th century is a tough place to be. Industrialization and sweatshops and depression and all of the things in world wars and all the stuff that goes on. And none of this, though, happened in a vacuum because there was a large portion of the American church that believed in something called the social gospel, right? This is, this is classic liberalism, capital L, and I don't mean politically, okay? I mean a theological way of thinking. And basically, a large chunk of the church said that Christianity has to adapt to the modern world. We have to jettison superstition, we have to get rid of all that supernatural stuff and retain this kernel of truth. And basically, if you simplify in the extreme, that meant doing good things for humanity. Christianity finds its fulfillment, its true form in helping others, and leaves all that supernatural stuff behind. And conservative, orthodox churches said, wait, no, all of the Bible is true completely true, literally true, including all that supernatural stuff you want to jettison. And that's our heritage. And the fundamentalists were born as a response to that. But up until that point, the churches that we would today call fundamentalists were the people starting soup kitchens and gospel missions and doing all of this good stuff. And then they said, we can't be associated with them. We can't look like we're them. Right? And so they stopped doing. And they separated themselves. And so evangelicalism was a response saying, hey, we need to retain orthodox belief, but we can't stop doing. It was a corrective. But still, it's very hard to overcome this urge to separate out, to be pure. Don't be like them, whoever them is. Because generally, by being pure, what we really mean is believe the right things, right? Works don't save us. Or we hear, in, to put it in the early 21st century, instead of the early 20th century, we hear words like social justice, and we get really scared because we think that's what those people believe, right? Those people who are not us. And we may be right. Those people people we as Bible-believing Christians disagree with on a lot of things, use that term. But does that give us the right to stop doing good things? I think Amos just taught us, no, absolutely not, right? We can't quit working for a just society, one that cares about people. We can disagree in lots of ways with lots of people. But remember, John 3 told us that Jesus came for the entire world, not just the people that agree with us. And it's important to note, and most commentators that I read as I was studying for this said, hey, Luke puts this story where he does for a reason. Because if you just read a few verses back, you know what the story is immediately preceding this? The Good Samaritan. You know, the lawyer comes to Jesus, hey Jesus, I'm doing pretty good, right? I'm doing all these things, keep the commandments, believe the right things, got it all together. 
I get eternal life, right? And Jesus says, okay, what sums up the law? The response? Love God, love others. And Jesus says, you got it. Go do that, and you get eternal life. But the lawyer knows he's not living up, right? So he says, okay, who's my neighbor? He's trying to justify himself. And so Jesus tells this parable that shows that neighbors are much bigger than what we think. And he says, well, and I would add, maybe today we need to start with the people who are actually our neighbors. But based on everything that story is about, it's all about doing, right? The Samaritan doesn't believe the right things. He's not Jewish. He doesn't worship the right way. He isn't a Bible-believing Christian who doesn't go to the right church or church at all. And he might not even believe in the right kind of God if he believes in God at all. And Jesus says, that guy is acting out the law, is behaving more Christianly, if you will, than all the people who know all the right stuff. And Jesus says, live like that guy, the guy who's not one of you. I find that interesting. It's not that doing is wrong because he just told a parable about doing. And as a side note, do you know where Martha's busyness came from? A bunch of guys just showed up unannounced at her front door and said, hey, we need to crash on your couch and do you have anything to eat? I mean, that's what happened. They're hot and tired from a long walk. They're getting dust everywhere on her clean things, which are not quite as clean as she would have liked because nobody told, them, told her that company was coming. And you can see where the spiral starts. None of the things that she is doing are bad and in, or even unnecessary. And in fact, in her culture, being hospitable was really important. The problem wasn't what she was doing. The problem was her approach. And we're going to get to that in a minute. This story functions sort of as a counter to the Good Samaritan story. You can avoid doing the right things or you can make doing everything. And both are problems and easy mistakes to make. And, and one of the best illustrations I can think of is this, is when you, you learn to drive, what is one of the problems that everyone has early on? It's overcorrection, right? You drift a little bit and you go too far the other way. And where you really see this is at night. Because you get mesmerized by the headlights coming the other way and you have a tendency to drift toward them, right? I remember it very clearly, both when I did it and when I had to teach my oldest son to do it. It's one of those things, it's, it's just natural. We overcorrect. The, the same thing is going on here. And I think one of the correctives we, we need to think about is something like Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, that grounds our faith in the person and work in Jesus who pays our penalty. There's nothing about work saving us in that. But it tells us to hold on to the hope we possess and then says we, could, we should consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds and connects that directly afterwards with meeting together as a group. And it really sounds to me like doing is still important. 
if we read that passage. The third mistake is the inverse of the previous one. The thinking goes, well, if Mary made the right choice and she's with Jesus, then I just need to have me and Jesus time. That's it. Me and Jesus. And so we inadvertently reduce what Christianity is to sort of a spiritual self-help session with a spiritual life coach. And that's what we turn Jesus into. And that's another easy mistake to make. And at various points in Christian history, Mary has been held up as the model for the contemplative life, sequestered away from the world. And honestly, this is an appealing mistake, right? Because we look around at the world disintegrating and say, I don't want to be influenced by that. I don't want my family to be influenced by that. I want to keep away from all of that stuff because the culture holds up vices as virtues. And we want a safe place for our kids and we want security and we know that Jesus offers it. So why don't we just stay here behind gates and a fence that keeps out the ones that are opposed to him? But that's not what Jesus is saying to Martha. In fact, when we pause and look around at Luke's own gospel, we can see that when Jesus praises Mary, he's not holding up some ideal of isolation of an individual with Jesus and nobody else singing Kubaya. Again, the Good Samaritan, an example. Or Luke chapter 11, there's an interesting conversation. This is just one chapter away in verses 37 to 54. And Jesus is invited to the home of a Pharisee for a meal. Right? And he breaks Pharisaical tradition. He insults his host and some of the other guests, the scribes. And he compares them to a cup that's been washed on the outside, but not on the inside. So it looks good, but nobody wants to drink from it. You know what he says to them? He says, you know how you clean the inside? Take care of the poor. Tells them, yeah, tithe. Do your religious duty. Do those things. But don't forget justice. I hear Amos again in my head. Don't neglect the more important things he said. It's not exactly a crowd-pleasing message that he gives. And me and Jesus doesn't reflect this conversation. Verse 38 says that Jesus was with his disciples when they came to Martha and Mary's house. So at least 12, right? But at the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus sent out 72 disciples to preach and teach. So we don't know how many exactly are with Jesus, but it is not Jesus and Mary alone having me time. And one last word about reading the story wrong before we move to reading it right. We all have this tendency to pit ourselves against others to measure ourselves, to compare ourselves to others. And sometimes we pick out people that are um, spiritually better than us and sometimes spiritually worse. But we need to stop that comparison game. When we do that, we read this wrong because it's not helpful and it's not the point of the passage. And to take it a step further, some of us personality-wise tend to be doers and some tend to be thinkers right? Some of us gravitate towards tasks 
and some towards understanding. Some tasks, some people. There's a host of ways that we can divide people up. Introverts and extroverts, tasks and people. Maybe you're into DISC or for work you had to do Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram is really big right now with lots of people. And for the record, I don't care what number you are or what your wing is or anything else. Mom. My mother is hugely into the Enneagram thing right now. And I'm like, okay, I don't want to have another conversation because I really don't care. We divide people up into personalities, right? A kid about that. I really don't have an opinion one way or the other about the Enneagram. Um, but this idea of dividing people up into categories of who is better or more spiritual is really, really problematic. Now, knowing our own personal tendencies is helpful because then we're able to know where we tend, to, in what way we tend to stumble. But, so the reason why I flew to California is I went to see a, a friend from college. He's an activist, literally an activist. Uh, back in the height of the recession, 2008, 2009, he lives in Modesto, California. Um, he saw huge waves of crisis hit his city. It's a city about the size of Aurora. It's in the Central Valley of California, and he saw societal cracks and a government straining under the weight of it, literally cutting staff because they didn't have any choice, and more and more people needed help. Modesto and Stockton, California, were among the worst hit in the country when that recession hit, housing and everything else, okay? And he was on staff at a church. He was a pastor of a large church, one of the pastors. And he said, we have to step up. I love my city. I love Modesto. And so Love Modesto was born. And so was what would become the larger group, Love Our Cities. And it was born because he had to do something about the crisis he saw. And the good that they have been doing since then has been driven by their faith. And it's amazing. In the last year, over 60 cities that they've worked with. And they don't always get it right. And sometimes, and Jeff will be the first person to tell you, sometimes they jump in and they have jumped in and they've done things wrong because they wanted to do, but they didn't stop to ask and say, are we helping or hurting by this? But he is all about connecting people for the good of the community. He brought me out to California because he needs help telling his story. He's a doer, and let me tell you, he was like a caged lion for two days of meetings. He could not sit still. It drove him crazy to sit there and not do. And I'm the guy sitting in the room asking all the questions about why they do, what they do, how they do it, so that I can tell his story. That's why I was there. And you know what? He needed me for that, but I need him to tell me, pick up a shovel, go dig there, right? Because I'll think about it too long if I don't. And so we all need each other, and those personalities work together. And I believe that God made us different for a reason. So let's look at a few ways to read the story right. First, and this is not an exhaustive list, but I think these are fairly obvious. The first is, friends matter. 
How many people do you know that you could just drop in on unannounced and it's going to be okay? It's not going to be a problem. That's what Jesus does. He knew he can drop in on Mary and Martha. They're his friends. Hospitality matters. Friendships matter. Even to Jesus. Think about this. He has been teaching, traveling, sending out disciples, training them as they report back, and that's taxing. It takes a lot just to do the logistics side of a business or a ministry, right? The staff, think about the staff that makes Village Bible Church go on a daily, a weekly basis. And beyond just the logistics of the thing, which is an interesting enterprise as, as it is, because there are five locations and there's staff and issues and needs, it's also the weight of spiritual oversight, of caring for people and the problems and the needs and helping people to grow to become who God wants them to be. And those very acts of caring and helping are often isolating on their own. And often the pastor doesn't have the support network or the friends that many of the rest of us have. And we live in an age where it's really easy to get isolated. Get up in the morning, get ready for work, get the kids off to school, go to the garage, get in the car, garage door goes up, pull out, go to work, do our thing, Come home, garage door goes up, pull in, goes down, and we've never even seen our neighbors, right? It's easy to get isolated. I've been reading this book lately about being a neighbor. It's called, literally, The Art of Neighboring. And in it, there's a, there's a grid of boxes that they have, and I'll show this up here. And so this grid, your house, is in the middle, Okay? So, neighbors across the street, either side, neighbors behind you. Not everybody has it exactly like this, but it's close. And so line A is fill in that person's name. Okay? Line B, something about the person, and it's got to be deeper than they drive a red car, right? Or they have, you know, kids. So, some kind of detail. And line C is something deeper about the person, like what matters to them. Here's the thing. The authors have done this across the country, and they have found really, really, really consistently across the country, only 10% of us can do A. Entire nation. I gotta be honest, I can't. I know most of them, first names, but I am terrible with names, with connecting, like I'll remember a face, but connecting the right name with the right face, I'm, I'm bad. I know I'm bad. I grab my wife, help me to remember. She's fantastic at it. She remembers everybody. Line B, less than 3%. Well, around 3%. Line C, less than 1% of us can do that. Hospitality matters. Friends matter, and not just in the sitcoms. If you look at John 15 with me for a minute, I find this really interesting. John 15, verses 9 to 17. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that he lay, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because servants do not know their master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I've learned from the Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love one another. Jesus elevates love, and he calls us friends, not followers, but friends, and this is really telling, and I think it's important for this entire thing. Jesus drops in on Mary and Martha, and they have that kind of relationship, and I think we can't underestimate this, and we often do. Think about this, too, when you think about friends, friendship. Martha feels close enough to Jesus that she does not have a problem complaining to him. Right? You don't do that to the high-up rabbi that's the really important person. You don't complain to that person if you are nobody. You have to have a relationship. And Martha complains to Jesus. I don't think she would have done that if she was doing everything she could to impress him so that some of you know, his shine would rub off or that she could be part of his group. Second, be anxious for nothing. I think this is at the heart of this. When Jesus confronts Martha after she complains, he says, Martha, you're worried and upset over many things. The details. You're anxious. And the real issue isn't that Martha is doing stuff because she is being hospitable. The issue is her attitude. The issue is that she's let a good thing distract her and drag her away from the best thing, which is Jesus, as Phil said earlier, right? Jesus is the best thing. And she's so busy worrying about doing stuff for Jesus that she's neglecting to be with Jesus. And when we live that way, the good things we do, and I mean good things, end up becoming bad, and I believe really, really strongly, this is point one of the devil's strategy for Christians. It's not generally get us to do bad stuff. It's get us distracted by good stuff so we take our eyes off of Jesus. Because you know what happens when we get focused on all the good stuff and we take our eyes off Jesus? We get overwhelmed. We see the problem and the issue as hopeless. We see the enormity of the task that's before us and we can't solve it. And we become more vulnerable to attack than ever. And then we do start doing the bad things and justifying them because I can't do all the good things anyway. And that's a problem for us. Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in every situation present our request to God with thanksgiving. And he's not pulling that out of thin air. You know who also said not to be anxious? Jesus. In Luke 12, 22 to 34, he teaches his disciples not to worry. This is his famous teaching about life being more than clothing or the stuff we have. 
In Matthew 10, 19 to 20, Jesus even says, hey, you're going to get arrested. You're going to get brought before kings. You are going to have a really hard time. Don't be anxious even then. I'm going to give you what to say. And in Back to that Luke 12 passage. In Luke 12, 31, Jesus says we have to put his kingdom first. Then we get. Then we gain. When we focus on ourselves, even on the good things that we're supposed to be doing, maybe even the things he's called us to do, and we don't put him first, that's when trouble starts. Which leads us to the third way we can read this story right. And that is what discipleship looks like. There's a loaded word for you, discipleship. Buzzword, church word. Smacks of the really spiritual person. I had a professor in college who used to say, say it this way. When he's trying to make this point, this kind of thinking, he would say it with a pseudo-British accent. That we think of the really spiritual people, right? Like the, the people that are better than us, puffed up. But notice what Jesus does. He commends Mary's action. She sits at his feet. It's a posture of learning, of submitting to the authority of a spiritual teacher. That's what they did. It means that she is admitting she doesn't have it all together, and she knows where she needs to turn. Jesus. Learners in the ancient world, disciples, their entire goal was to become like their teacher, to become like the rabbi, and that's what Mary's Doing. And here's where I get meddlesome. You can't be a disciple of Jesus if the only time you're with him is on Sunday morning at church. You can't. You can't be a disciple from afar. You need to be up close, personal, in your off hours, at home. You need a life submitted to his. If you think that Christianity is about believing the right things, but not having them affect your life, you are missing the point. Following Jesus, being his disciple, means that everything about you gets changed, exchanged for who he is. Means that being a Christian affects what you believe about God and the point of it. It also means it's going to be reshaping your life to his image. It means that there's no area of your life that God doesn't get to tell you what to do in. It means, candidly, that if you come to church simply to be encouraged, but never challenged in your day-to-day -day life, you have another thing coming. It also means you can't do it alone. Mary was with Jesus and the other disciples. Mary was not alone with Jesus. I don't know if Martha was alone or not in the kitchen. Sort of implies maybe she was, but it wasn't good for her. And Jesus has a conversation with his friend. And I want to look at quickly at four radical implications of this conversation. This is the takeaway part, the application for you and me. First, friendship with Jesus means that he cares about us. And many times in church world, we talk about God using us. And it's the only context I can think of where we talk about somebody using me or you, and we look at it as a good thing. I get it. I say it myself. But there's a danger looking in that phrase. We can forget that Jesus calls us his friends. 
And it's not just him being nice to us. The Gospels are full of accounts where Jesus is compassionate. In Matthew 14, he has compassion on the crowd and, feels the, and heals the sick. In Matthew 20, he has compassion on two blind men and heals them. In Luke 7, he has compassion for a widow whose son is dead and about to be buried, so he raises him from the dead. Why? Because she's destitute and alone. Luke 19, he looks over Jerusalem as a city and he weeps over them for what is coming, not for his crucifixion, but for them. And in Mark 6, 34, he has compassion on the people because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And this conversation takes it a step further. Mary, or Martha, excuse me, is off base, and there's no question about this. But she starts by trying to honor Jesus by what she did. She cares about him, and Jesus says, Martha, Martha, in verse 41, and that conveys deep emotion, not condescension. And he wants the greatest good for Martha. That's why he confronts her. That friendship matters. He's always concerned with our deepest needs. Second, friendship with Jesus means being honest with him. I love this part of the story, right? Martha is exasperated and she tells Jesus she's exasperated. And how many of us won't ever do that? She's honest. Doesn't mean she's right. It means she's honest with Jesus. She tells him what she actually thinks and feels. And the question for us is, are we? Are we honest enough with ourselves to speak the truth to Jesus and stop hiding behind spiritual sounding words and cliches? God can take our questions. He can take our wrong motivations and our doubts, and he can take our anger and our frustration, but what he can't, what he won't do is force us to tell him. He won't leave us alone either. Martha is honest with Jesus, and because she's honest with him, he works in her life. He doesn't let her stay in her funk. Are we willing to risk that? Because that's the third part, of course. Friendship with Jesus means that he will correct us. That's what happens here, right? If you want a life where God never tells you what to do, don't be a Christian. If you think that going to church and behaving is enough, don't be a Christian. Because Jesus wants us as friends. As Hebrews 12, 6 says, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And it's interesting that connection between discipline and disciple. You can't be one without the other. Being a friend of Jesus means that he will not leave us in our error. He will correct us. If you don't want God telling you what to do in your family life and your business dealings and how you treat your neighbor, even the ones you disagree with and don't like, if you don't want him meddling in your politics or who you're sleeping with or, well, anything in your world, then don't be friends with Jesus because he's not going to let any corner of your world alone. Finally, friendship with Jesus is for everyone. Mary is acting as a disciple. And let me tell you, in the first century Jewish world, women didn't do what Mary did. They did not sit at the feet of rabbis, period. End of discussion. Martha was functioning as society expected. She was doing the right thing. Except that Jesus wasn't interested in the appearance of doing right. He hung out with the wrong people all the time. Jesus is interested in people being with him. And Luke has a theme throughout his gospel of showing us 
that all kinds of people can follow Jesus. Even the ones, especially the ones aren't supposed to or don't fit our notions. The disciples are called not from the educated class, but from fishermen and a political zealot, literally. Jesus praises the faith of a Roman centurion, the hated occupying force, and he condemns the religious good guys and eats with sinners. He praises a Samaritan and goes to the home of a tax collector. He praises the faith of a widow and insults the teachers of the religious law. And then he eats with them too. Discipleship is for everyone. Friendship with Jesus is for everyone, not a select spiritual few. And Mary's act of devotion, her willingness to break social conventions for the sake of friendship with Jesus convicts me. Am I willing to break boundaries for the sake of Jesus? Am I willing to be that kind of friend? Or am I just going along with what I'm supposed to do? Am I so busy doing for Jesus that I'm not being with Jesus? Back to our sitcoms. All those sitcoms speak to the need for true friends, but none of them compare to the friendship of Jesus. Let's be clear, it's going to cost. Proverbs 18.24 says that there is a one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And I believe that's ultimately Jesus. But are we willing to risk it? I'll end with this. I referred to this earlier. Hebrews 10, 22 to 24 says this. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we can Spur, we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Amen?